This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Russell Granite, Executive Director of Lincoln Center Education, whose mission is to enrich the lives of students, educators, and all other learners by providing opportunities for engagement with the arts on stage, in the classroom, digitally, and in the community. Russell received his BS in Communications from Emerson College. He attended the Overseas Graduate Program for Theater at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and received his MA in Educational Theater from NYU's Steinhardt School of Education. He founded Arts Education Resource after working 17 years in nonprofit arts education organizations and served as its director for five years. He's also an adjunct professor at NYU. Russell, good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Robert. You spent your career working for nonprofit organizations dedicated to the arts. How did your own education lead you to feel strongly about that of others? I don't think I felt like I had any other choice. I mean, Banking, law, medicine, just was not in the cards for me. Uh, it just didn't seem, I mean, not that you couldn't be a nonprofit in those, in those fields. It just, uh, I was drawn to the arts, wanted uh, a life where I wouldn't have regret. And I think I thought that even as a young person, which I think is kind of an odd thing to be thinking about when you're, you know, 15 years old. Uh, and I uh, went to the theater a lot as a kid. I mean, it was, I don't think I really had any intentions of becoming an actor. I, I think that would have been something, um, I probably dreamed of it a little bit, but the reality is I wanted to pursue something that I was passionate about. And I was passionate really about all the arts, but at that point in my life, as a young adult, it was theater. And were you exposed to the arts as a child? Yeah, I was. I was not a particularly strong student until my mom found a school that stressed the arts as an academic tool. Um, I'm the youngest of five kids. The oldest is an attorney and went to you know all of the Ivy League schools uh, and uh, tested well. And he is someone who um, just is a good student. And so a traditional public school for someone like that, who can you know read quickly, retain the information, and then uh, test well with that information, um, that's you know, our system is built for people like that. And so he did really well. And I think because he was the oldest, my parents just assumed all the kids were like that. And it wasn't that I couldn't keep up in school. I just wasn't an A student. You know, I, I, and, and I liked school, but mostly I like going to, you know, the theater club after school or, you know, choir before school or, you know, that was really what, what was my intrinsic motivation in, in being at school. And then my parents found a school that focused on the arts as a learning tool. Um, so that meant, you know, physics and science and social studies were taught uh, with the arts being at its core. And that really changed my 
um, view and my sort of passion for learning. I mean, you know, had someone said to me when I was a kid, you would eventually get a master's in education. Uh, that was a, that would have been very funny to me because that was just not an area where I felt comfortable or excelled. And then, you know, like most things, all you have to do is you have to do a little bit well, and then all of a sudden you feel much more confident in other areas. And I think that's exactly what happened to me as I wound up at the school and realized that I was smart, but I was smart in a slightly different way than my brother was and, or is. And I, uh, that changed everything for me. And I've also been fortunate enough to have very strong mentors outside adults, whether it was a theater teacher. Um, I went to ACT in San Francisco for a summer and met a woman by the name of Francine Tacker, who was instrumental in, in putting me on my path. She went to Emerson, I went to Emerson, she went to Lambda, I went to Lambda. Um, and, and so I think it's a it, it was a mixture of my parents finding the right learning environment for me and then for me identifying mentors to help me through my sort of collegiate life. And it sounds like that school was a, an ideal confluence for you. So how did your parents come to that school? It really was a public school. It was just another public school, but it was a school that understood that the arts are much more than enrichment or a fringe to a child's life. And so it wasn't, it wasn't even like an arts magnet school. It was just a school that the, the principal of the building and the teachers thought um, that the arts were an important way to teach kids. And, yeah. and that um, really changed everything for me. And it's been shown study after study that introducing kids to the arts at a young age has so many benefits beyond the arts themselves as far as uh, self-confidence and study habits and just a whole range of things. And unfortunately, with No Child Left Behind, with the focus on math and science and English, uh, tended to, to really put that in the, uh, in the second or third tier. How right. did you feel about uh, that No Child Left Behind? And, and where do you find uh, arts education in the schools today? Uh, those are two very separate questions. Uh, um, uh, understood. You could take uh, either one first. <laughs> so. um, I say, I mean, just to the previous point, the thing that scares me the most about education today and the disservice we do for young people, at least in public schools, and obviously not all public schools, there are some amazing public schools in this country, is that there is so little room today for young people to successfully fail at something because the stakes at taking tests are so high and competition to get into schools is, you know, as, as strong as it ever has been. And it is astounding to me that kids are so scared of failing. And if you think about what we learn when we fail is far greater from what we learn from when we succeed. Positively, and I yeah. believe the arts really give kids the ability to fail successfully. And that is an important piece of, of learning for me. Um, you know, No Child Left Behind to answer that question. There are so few national school-wide initiatives that have ever worked. I mean, what changes school or a district is school by school. Uh, you know, there is yet to be a reform that anyone can point to on a national level, level that has ever worked because what, uh, what happens when you're on a national level is that it becomes in some ways watered down and somewhat generic to make sure that it fits in every community, but our communities are so diverse. I mean, in New York City alone, you know, it's, we have hundreds of languages. In some schools, we have over 100 languages, different languages spoken within the one school. And in a community where there are, you know, varied cultures, yet there's no 
acknowledgement of those cultures when you're working with young people. And unless we encourage that cultural sensitivity, there are a whole group of kids we're never going to reach. Um, so the, it's less of my issue with No Child Left Behind and more of an issue with sort of these large sweeping reform efforts, which I think come from the best of intentions, but have never worked. Um, arts education where it stands today is I think the pendulum is, is moving. I, I think it's very, I am, you know, the eternal optimist. Um, I think we're beginning to see signs that the standardized test or that people are understanding that the standardized test is only one way to measure knowledge and achievement. And that's a good sign. I, you know, I'm not opposed to standardized tests. I think you do need a way to, uh, to understand what a child knows in a, uh, in a quick kind of snapshot. Um, not everything can be portfolio. Not everything can be sit down, you know, side by side with a teacher. But it's got to be a composite ways in which we look at what a child knows and understands. Um, so um, arts education is hierarchical and it's in its own way. Most of our schools have music and visual art. Almost none of our schools have theater and dance. Um, you know, I believe strongly that on the elementary level, students should be exposed to all four art forms. And then in middle school and high school, they should be able to specialize in one or two art forms and, you know, perhaps graduate in with a, one particular art form of interest. Um, but, you know, it's to your point, it's, it, there are two ways of looking at arts education. And so we're clear there are different ways in which we define arts education. There is the skills-based instruction where you teach the art form. You teach how to read music. You teach how to dance, how to act, how to sing. Then there is um, the idea of arts integration, where you're using an art form to maybe highlight a curricular subject. So if you're studying ancient Greece, what were the dances of the time? Um, what was the theater of the time? Uh, what were the visual arts like? So you know that's where the arts really help um, uh, enlighten and excite a curriculum. And then there's is really what we do here at Lincoln Center Education, which is more on the aesthetic education piece, which is using a work of art, dance, music, theater, and visual art in an academic subject where we're looking at things like choice making and embodying and making connections. So it's less about highlighting a historical time and more about saying, well, that's interesting. What kind of choices and decisions did Alvin Ellie use in that piece? How might those same kinds of choices and decisions be made in a physics class or in a science class? So it's you know, really hoping to give kids the skills, and what we like to say here is to give kids the skills to think like an artist. Um, so I, I see arts education coming back to schools. Um, I don't think people fully understand that it's a um, civil right and that it's not um, a privilege. Like the reality is, every it, you know, every private school has a strong arts program. You know, if the private school is closed you know, today our public schools would get better overnight uh, because the parents wouldn't accept the kind of conditions that some of our public schools are in. And the, the, um, this idea of grit and perseverance and sticking to something serves a kid regardless of what they go on to do. So if you've ever learned a musical instrument or had, you know, music in your class, you understand what it takes to be good at something. That's, I mean, Alan Greenspan, the economist, talks about that. He said, look, the study of music gave him the ability to hold divergent thought in his head. And he said he would not be the person he is today had he not studied music. It's not that he's, he's not a musician. I mean, he might still play, you know, on his own, but it was the skill that gave him what he, the skills he needed to be successful in business. And I think that's ultimately the message that I want to send. I mean, I, truthfully, what I'd love to be able to say is, look, the arts are important because the arts are important, end of, you know, full stop, end of discussion. But the reality is the arts actually do lots of, you know, extraordinary things, both, both intrinsically and extrinsically. 
And I, as a, uh, a young pianist growing up uh, who studied the instrument seriously, I can certainly testify to that uh, today. And all of the things that it gave me uh, in my early years, in my teenage years, and into my 20s, uh, these are things that I carry with me today. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned the lack of uh, theater and dance in the schools. Is this because of the lack of resources or the lack of awareness? What, what's the cause of that? We have a whole generation of school leaders, principals, who have graduated systems, public systems, where they didn't have a strong arts education. Um, so you, you have a group of leaders thinking, well, I was okay, and I didn't have an arts program. And so if you don't have a strong working knowledge, you tend to go towards what most schools have, which is an instrumental program or a choral program. So I think music tends to be where, and most Parents will probably ask about, at some point, I want my child to learn a musical instrument. Um, and visual art, and I think the same is true um, for visual art. So uh, just historically, our schools have pretty much always had music and visual art. Um, some schools, you know, many schools will do the spring musical or the fall Shakespeare classical production, but that doesn't mean there's any kind of theater department happening at the school. And so, the, the and then dance, I think a lot of principals are concerned about you know, you need the proper floor, you need space, you need a bar, you need mirrors, you need music, you need to qualify dance teacher. Uh, and I think there's just concern about dance. And out of all of the art forms, there is some concern that dance will really just attract the girls, although that we know that that's not true. Um, but I think it's a, it's a concern for, for many principals. And um, turning to the arts education resource, uh, how did you come to found uh, the organization and, and what does it do? Well, so I'm not, you know, I gave that up when I started here at Lincoln Center. So yeah. I, I, um, I was at the Center for Arts Education, which was one of the Annenberg um, challenge sites. So when I was there, we had a budget first of $36 million and then of another $24 million to bring the arts back to the New York City Public Schools. So I really cut my teeth across all art forms there because I had had a theater background, but I didn't really have much of a dance or um, music background. And um, so it was at the center where I saw from a, really a funder's point of view what was working in and what wasn't in the schools. And I was particularly interested in how do you get kids with disabilities included in these activities? Because oftentimes when I went on site visits, I would watch kids, whether it was a visible disability or an invisible disability, not participating. And I remember walking into a dance class and there was a, a young woman in a wheelchair and she was on the side. And the principal said, well, not everybody can do everything. And I remember thinking, I cannot even believe you said that out loud. And, yeah. you know, why is this teacher not being, you know, the, the best person to ask is the kid in the wheelchair. Like, this is not rocket science, you know. And, and I was appalled at the way that some of our kids with disabilities were treated. And so I, I started over my tenure at the Center for Arts Education to identify areas that I was particularly passionate about. So I was passionate about this idea of working with kids with disabilities. I was passionate about, um, and this is, you know, no one really, I'm very much alone in this world, but I, I am particularly interested in research around this work. But research that's helpful, you know, formative, you know, that it's, um, there, there's something called action research, which is really steeped in, you know, what do you need to know in order just to get better at your job? I don't want to know, you know, a year from now that 86% of my participants felt this was a successful experience because I'm concerned that I'm going to get that information too late and not, in fact, have time to make my program better as I'm doing my program. So action research is really looking at how do you improve um, a project as you're going through the project itself. And then the third area was I, I am fascinated by why 
some schools, you know, what's the secret sauce? You walk into some public schools and it's, it's, there's something humming about the school. And within the same neighborhood, sometimes even across the street, it's a school that you can't, you wouldn't even send your, you know, the, your worst enemy to within the same community. I understand how that works across, you know, the Upper East Side versus Central Brooklyn, but I don't necessarily get how that works within one neighborhood. So um, those three areas, uh, disability, action research and partnership were areas that I was particularly interested. So I really hung my shingle out with those three areas and I was set. I mean, I had absolutely no interest in going back to nonprofit. I loved consulting. It suited my personality. I had a young kid. It gave me flexibility. I have a partner who's an actor. I mean, it it just, it was the kind of life that I, it was, it seemed like it was a perfect match for me. And then it was actually um, seven years. And then seven years in, I got a call to come meet the president of Lincoln Center at that time, Reynold Levy, and anyone who knows Reynold know he is, he's probably the most persuasive uh, man in nonprofit, said, look, I think you need to come here and reimagine education at the largest performing arts center in the world in New York City where I wouldn't have to move my family. And, you know, it was a hard, that, that was hard to turn down. And, and he, you know, he said, look, everything you believe in, which is working with those who are most disenfranchised, partnerships between schools and cultural organizations, and working with kids with disabilities, he said, you'll, you'll never be Lincoln Center. You know, as successful as you may become, you will never have the brand of Lincoln Center. And he goes, you know, take a second and think about what you could do under the Lincoln Center brand. And that really, I mean, I have to say out of the, you know, two hours that we met, that was the single moment in that meeting where I thought I hadn't really thought about that. And he's absolutely right. I mean, it is unbelievable what is possible when you come from an organization like Lincoln Center. And why is it, uh, Russell, on the surface that uh, people with disabilities are assumed, or people often assume that they don't have, say, music ability. Uh, for example, somebody with autism can be an amazing uh, instrumentalist, uh, but right. uh, teachers often don't give them the chance. Why is there this dichotomy? I think there's a lot of you know, preconceived notions and, quite honestly, prejudice around people with disabilities. And I, there's a lot we don't know. I think there's a fear factor. Um, sometimes it's just, I mean, I remember I you know, have taught this course for years at uh, NYU called um, Drama for Special Populations. And I remember saying to these future theater teachers, when you hold auditions, what you, what you traditionally do is you post, you know, it says anything goes, auditions Friday at two. And then you get hundreds of kids to sign up for these things. I said, you know, you're going to have to go to these kids in, uh, who have, you know, IEPs or, you know, uh, if they are classified with a disability of some kind. And you actually have to go up to them and say, I really hope you audition. Because you have to understand from where they're coming from, that's not, no one has ever said that to them before. So there's a, it, there's a lot, and there's a lot of goodwill out there as well. Sometimes it's just people don't think about these things. So it's a, I think the tides are changing. I think the more, you know, there was autism, the musical, there, you know, there, there's more, there are more characters on television with a disability. So we're seeing it more in, in everyday life. And I think that's had huge impact on, on schools and how we think about our kids with disabilities. And, and again, I do think it's getting better. I, I think there's some tremendous work out there for uh, kids with disabilities in the arts. And in reflecting on your experience with Arts Education Resource, what advice would you offer to young people uh, who may be seeking to found their own organization? Uh, know what separates you from the pack. I mean, we don't need any more nonprofits. We don't need any more organizations unless you're filling a real need in the community or however you define 
define your work. Um, I'm a huge supporter of uh, being entrepreneurial. I mean, I even said to Reynolds, which was interesting, I when I left the Center for Arts Education, I was a senior member there, and but I wasn't the executive director. And I remember a number of people said to me, I'm so happy you're going out on your own, but know that you're taking yourself out of the executive director track. Mostly they don't, most organizations don't want to hire consultants because they don't think they can be um, dedicated and focused entirely on one organization because they're so used to in their minds, you know, working in multiple places. Um, and, and that you probably would, if you want to go back to the nonprofit sector, you're going to have a hard time going in as a senior leader because of your, but you should be a consultant because we'll think you're good at it, but know that you're taking yourself off the track. So flash to, you know, it's three months later at Lincoln Center having some great you know, success here. And I go see Reynolds and I said, you know, I'm just curious, you know, I was never an executive director. I was taking over an organization, you know, we're now, uh, you know, a $14 million organization with about 100 employees just in education. And I said, what, what was it about our meeting or about me that you thought I could do this? And he said, oh, easy. He said, you're entrepreneurial. Huh, yes. You started, you know, you started a consulting firm in 08, you know, when no one was consulting and no, you know, that that wasn't what or, you know, whatever year it was. And, um, and I and that's what I would say to young people is that it's don't let other people determine your track. You know, I, I supposedly took myself out of a track and now I'm executive director, of, you know, one of the largest education programs in the country. So it's not, you know, you got to be easy on yourself when you when you follow what really what is you want to do. Yeah, and the entrepreneurial aspect is absolutely key because you've got to be aware of so many different parts of the business, the organization. Right, absolutely. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate interview with Managing Editor Robert Rim and Russell Granite, Executive Director of Lincoln Center Education. And you've worked in New York throughout your career, uh, which is obviously such a strong center for arts education. So in looking beyond New York, uh, well, first, does Lincoln Center Education work with uh, schools beyond New York? We do. We have, uh, we're in about 300 schools in and around the New York City area and the sort of 30 mile radius to the campus itself. And then we have a number of consultancies and partnerships throughout the, the U.S. We have a, a strong presence in, in Mesa, Arizona, as an example. And we have an international practice as well. So we're in places like Seoul and Singapore and uh, Tianjin, Abu Dhabi. Uh, so we're, we're out there both locally, nationally, and internationally. And how can cities, uh, both nationally and internationally, enhance their focus on arts education? Um, I, the first, they have to do an inventory and have a strong understanding of what they have. I mean, some people over-report and some people actually under-report because they don't really know what they have. And there, there has to be a combination of, you know, there, there's this 
long-time debate, you know, does it happen in school, out of school? Is it a certified teacher? Is it an art specialist or an artist, a teaching artist coming in? And the answer to that question is kids need both. Kids need, you know, my view is that we need a certified arts teacher. And when I say arts, I mean dance, music, theater, and visual art in every school because of scope and sequence. We need kids to understand that you can't have visual arts in second grade and then again maybe in fifth grade and, and then you know music in third grade. You know, oftentimes schools schedule the arts where there are holes in the schedule and that's the wrong thing to do. You know, we want kids to, from kindergarten or pre-K through high school to have a sequential arts experience taught by a highly qualified arts teacher. But at the same time, a highly qualified arts teacher is not necessarily a working artist affiliated with a museum or a cultural institution. And a place like New York City, what I find fascinating and you know heartening all at the same time is when kids from the Bronx or Brooklyn come to Lincoln Center and they've never been to Manhattan before. So if we're trying to open up the world to them, if education is about opening up the world to them, they've got to get out of their neighborhoods. They've got to get out of you know, the, the community they live in and see that the world is larger than that. And, you know, I love the fact when I see kids come a second and third time and, you know, they, or they come back with their parents and they're, they say to their parents, let me show you where the bathrooms are. And the parents are like, you've been here? Like what? You know, it's, it's this great moment when I see kids have ownership over what a lot of people consider to be a very sort of elite, um, uh, you know, wealthy um, uh, campus. You know, this. a lot of people don't think Lincoln Center is for everybody. And, you know, we do our best to make sure that everyone understands this is for the people of New York City and beyond. Um, so it's a, it, you know, what I would love to see happen is first an inventory of what schools have, make sure you have a certified teacher uh, uh, with the scope and sequence of instruction, and then reach out to your local arts community to make sure kids have experiences outside of the building. And do these three things that you described, do they generally gestate within school boards, with politicians, with parents? How does it really take hold? Well, the most powerful group are the parents. And parents, you know, as a parent, you don't always think that. Um, but if a group of parents went to a principal and said, you know, there is in almost every state a state mandate for arts education. And, you know, not that you want to march into the principal and say, look, you're not in compliance, but the reality is, you know, I think you could probably walk into almost any school other than an arts magnet school, perhaps, and they would not be meeting this, the local state mandate for arts education. Um, and, you know, it's just, uh, again, you know, it's saying to a principal, this is about a quality, well-rounded, complete education, which includes the arts. And I, if a, if a, I would start with parents. I mean, to answer your question, I think it should start with parents, and then parents can go to the local elected officials, and the elected officials will like them because they're the ones voting them in. Um, but that's usually the most effective way to get arts programming up and running. And beyond the kids themselves, what does a strong arts education presence give to communities? You know, what the role that they play within the community? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, for us, it's a way to convene people. <clears throat> you know, we have a lot of, you know, programs, as an example, for seniors where, you know, they come out and they'll, you know, we have a, this great program where we've created um, this technology where libraries can broadcast from our stages, either a live stream or from a portal, kind of like a Netflix portal. So if, you know, they want to show, you know, Audrey McDonald singing the American Songbook or Krista Chenoweth singing Broadway, they can broadcast that onto a screen through, you know, our, this 
this this elect, this um, uh, technology we've created. And what it does is it gathers people in communities around a common interest. And you know what we'll say to people is you know you could watch a version of this on television. And they say, oh no, we don't want to do that. You know how much fun it is to come and and they know. I mean, people who know Broadway as an example know everything about Broadway. So when they're sitting in a room with you know 50 other people who also adore Audrey McDonald, there's this incredible sense of community. And with the uh, amount of time people are spending on these handheld devices, we need to create more and more experiences where people get to put their phones down and have a communal experience. And oftentimes art is a great way to bring people together. And you mentioned seniors. How do you adapt your approach for different audiences, um, such as children, teachers, and seniors? Well, we do everything from, you know, from the very, very little to, you know, folks who have been a part of Lincoln Center for, you know, 50 years. Um, and it, a lot of it has to do with repertory. You know, what, what are we selecting? Um, we try and be culturally sensitive to uh, the different cultures in New York. Um, we try and be sensitive to times of day. You know, 11 o'clock in the morning is better for some people. Weekends are better for others. Um, we really try and play with this idea that, you know, uh, an 8 o'clock curtain, you know, Tuesday through Sunday doesn't necessarily work for everybody. So we try and be as responsive to the need as possible, and then we try and identify what the barriers are. So for instance, if you're a family and getting here is a barrier and you're in one of our programs, we will provide uh, a bus or a metro card for you. Um, if a ticket price is a barrier and you work with one of our programs, we will get you a $10 ticket, which is orchestra level, to see our performance. So we, we do our absolute best to make sure uh, we address whatever barriers there are for people getting here. And are there barriers for Lincoln Center Education to become involved in public school classrooms? Um, no, it's our, we're very welcome. I mean, the, the New York City Department of Education is incredibly supportive of our work and very supportive of the cultural community in New York. Um, the, the, the challenge that I think we have in a city like New York is the good schools, the good public schools, know what they have. You know, they know what this city can offer. So it's not uncommon to go into one of the elite public schools and be one of maybe eight different arts organizations that work in that school because they're, you know, they answer your calls. They've got some budget. They have a PTA that pays for things. There's someone who greets you and you get a bathroom key. You know, there are all kinds of, you know, things in these schools that, that work to your advantage. The, the harder part is if you look at places like East New York or the South Bronx, there are these schools and nobody's there. And so what I would love to see happen is a, is a, a greater understanding of where we are and where we're not and trying to spread that out a little bit. And, and I understand as someone who runs an organization, it is really hard to work in chaotic schools, but somebody has to do it. And so we are uh, incredibly dedicated here as Lincoln Center Education to work in the schools with little to no arts in the neighborhoods that have the highest poverty rate. So we are now focusing all of our energies in, um, into really the South Bronx and, and Central Brooklyn. And specifically in those schools, uh, what do you do there in, in those classrooms? It really depends. It depends on what the principal wants. Everything is um, a conversation. Uh, we don't prepackage anything. The only thing that we are really strict about is this sort of core pedagogy that we have. We were founded 40 years ago by the philosopher Maxine Green, and Maxine Green is really the one who, be who believed that art was really about disruption and that art should live in 
a physics class and a science class and a history class because we don't really worry about the art teacher and the art class because they're, they'll be getting it there. And so what we tend to do is identify a group of teachers regardless, you know, we don't care what they teach. And then we look at what we are offering here on campus as our repertory. And then we begin to make connections between, let's say, Alvin Alley or Paul Taylor or a piece of theater um, or you know, London Symphony Orchestra. And we begin to see where our rep could connect to them through their curriculum. And then we co-write curriculum for maybe eight visits. So we don't, you know, we're not in a, necessarily in a school for an entire semester. We might just visit one class, you know, six, eight times. And within that six to eight times, they might come to Lincoln Center. They would actually come to Lincoln Center and see something. So it's a, um, it's very customized to the school's need, but it's looking at giving kids the skills to think critically around the, uh, you know, uh, with, you know, around the world. And, um, and have it linked to these works of art. That's the ultimate goal. And how do you engage parents uh, whose children have an interest in the arts? Uh, it depends. We do everything from a family link program where if you're affiliated with a social service agency, you and your family can come to Lincoln Center twice uh, and receive a series of workshops. You get a photo album where you can collect photos of your time here at Lincoln Center, and all of that is subsidized up to $10. So that's an example of how we get families here with their parents here with their children. And then the, the other way within, let's say, a school setting is if your child is working with us during the school day on... Um, you know, uh, a piece based on Tchaikovsky, we might offer a workshop as an example after school or an evening or on the weekend where we're sharing with the parents what we're doing with their children, but it's all, it's, it's experiential. So the parent is actually experiencing it with their child. And then we take time at the end and think, and we want to have a reflection and discussion around, you know, what did we just do here? And, and it's so amazing to me that uh, parents will have these sort of aha moments where they're like, oh, wait a minute, I thought this was all going to be about dance, but I realize it's about problem solving and working together and collaboration. And, oh, I understand now why my kid loves this so much. And it, the parent piece is really important to the success of this work. Yeah, I'm smiling. I, I love to hear that. Um, the other side of that, of course, and I'm sure you've seen this, is when both parents are working or maybe it's a single parent home. So when the parents are not able to be engaged, how do you actually draw the kids in? Well, the, the kids can be easier than the parents. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> okay. Um, it's not, it's the, it, it's the uh, drawing in the kids can be a little bit of a challenge if they don't know, you know, why we're there or, or if it hasn't been well sort of positioned by the teacher or by the school. But by the time they get here, I mean, they're, you know, when you sit down and you, you know, share with someone that, you know, Lincoln Center is the largest performing arts center in the world. There are 5 million people who come here. We're on 16 acres. We have 32 theaters. Everyone in the world has played here. I mean, kids get really excited about this sort of hunt of, you know, Lincoln Center. You know, what is it? And who's been here? And, you know, you know who's, you know, Sting stood here where I am. You know, it's, it's, it's fun to watch them explore this extraordinary institution. And I, I'm incredibly proud of working here and feel like I can say that because I've only been here three years and you know it's been around 50 years so I um, the, the, the student piece is not a challenge I mean it's a challenge if you're working within a school where nobody's motivated and it's a low performing school I mean that, you, that's a challenge across the board but it's not ultimately that hard to get kids hooked into what we do here and all kids have curiosity. Uh, what often happens, though, is um, as they get older, they reach a certain level. Maybe they've had a certain level of success with their job, their career. 
uh, and then the curiosity seems to stop and then with other people they're 80 years old and they're they're even more curious than they were 50 right. years ago uh, and and I remember once when uh, Pierre Boulez said if you don't have curiosity you die I heard that when I right. was a teenager and I just it always stuck with me why do you think that is uh, that dichotomy between some people who really are content and the curiosity kind of fades and then other people it just continues throughout life I think it's how present people are. I watch that. I mean, I, I think people who come here obviously have a real love and passion for dance, music, theater, and to some degree visual art, given we have um, some beautiful tapestries and sculpture on our campus. Uh, I think uh, there's a sense that, you know, I've always, I love this definition of belonging, which is uh, they miss you when you're not there. Yeah. And we talk a lot about how do we get people here who wouldn't normally come here? And that idea of, you know, lifelong learn learning versus, you know, well, I'm at a certain age and my learning has stopped. Sometimes just has to be, you know, that flame has to be uh, relit. And that we can do that here. I mean, I watch people, you know, sit in the back row or not know what the box office is or where to get a ticket. And over time, the more comfortable that they feel coming here, the more they feel invested and the more they want to know. You know, it's you know one of the great things you can do after a performance is have the conductor come out and talk or have one of the musicians come out or, you know, because I work here, I forget about how much people love just to walk on the stage. Sure. And, that you know, anything you, you know, anything that's a secret, you know, or that you wouldn't necessarily get to do just by buying a ticket, you know, when they watch the, the stage hands or the crew at action backstage or when they get to watch a rehearsal. I mean, people love that. And it really does help them, I think, unlock that curiosity. It just has to be, you know, I'm, you know, obviously, as an educator, as a progressive educator, I'm very concerned about how much time kids spend in front of screens and in isolation. And that is a real concern of mine. And I and there are great benefits to, you know, technology and screens. But, the, you know, we've got to be careful that um, we, we're not sort of beating, you know, curiosity out of kids. I think it was Daniel Pink who went into a kindergarten class, the writer Daniel Pink, and said, uh, raise your hand if you're an artist. And every single kid raised his hand. And then he went to a senior class in high school and said, raise your hand if you're an artist. And not a single kid raised their hand. Yeah. And, you know, that's, you know, that's really distressing to me. Um, because yet, you hear corporate America say, all we want are the creative thinkers. We want those innovators and those who can imagine what no one else can imagine. Well, where are you going to get that? You're going to get that in the arts classroom. And so we, that to me is the mixed message. You know, we're told by corporate America that they want these skills, yet as schools and as policymakers, we're not fulfilling that by funding the arts and making sure that every kid, not just some kids, have a quality arts education. It just, sure. it, it's astounding to me. Sure. And part of that, you mentioned kids in front of screens. Um, part of that is uh, that can be used productively as the digital education aspect. So how do you extend your reach and accessibility through digital education? Well, it's certainly an area that we are working on. Uh, we have this portal uh, that I talked about where schools and libraries, and if people are interested, they should um, go to our website because there's a whole section on it. And it's free of charge. If you're a teacher or a librarian, you just have to log in and then you have access to um, you know, this incredible songbook of uh, uh, you know, captured events that we've had here at Lincoln Center. Um, and we're also looking at capturing performances 
uh, and allowing, uh, and then having uh, follow-up curriculum attached to it. So if a teacher is covering something, they get both the performance and the curriculum that they would need to implement it in their classroom. And then this year, we started a program called Dance and Cinema, where we have captured four major dances. Again, we're, um, you know, something like 3% of, based on the NEA report, something like 3% of elementary schools in the U.S. have a dance program. So we're concerned about dance. So this uh, Dance and Cinema program is uh, much like the Met Opera, where you go into your local movie theater and you buy a ticket and you see an extraordinary production of The Nutcracker or Revelations. Um, and so it's, we, we are capturing these dances and showing them in movie houses, but attached to that is a whole digital piece for uh, teachers and parents and uh, conservatories to use our curriculum, again, totally free. Um, for them to use it around the dances. So we're trying to be smart about it. We're, you know, we're doing things like creating apps where if you're in one of our halls and you want to know the shortest line to the bathroom, you will tell you that, you know, you can order a drink at the start of a show off your phone. And I mean, so we're sort of being playful in the way we think about digital. And we're also thinking about it, you know, how can we be most impactful? Because we, we are fine with working nationally, uh, but we want to make sure that there's access to high quality art. And most towns and communities have cultural institutions, but there are, you know, very rural communities where, you know, a live stream from Lincoln Center might be the best way to convey a work of art to them. So we want to be able to know that we can do that. Yeah, which directly fulfills your mission for access and equity, doesn't it? That's right, exactly. Yeah. And what is, um, what else does the future hold for Lincoln Center education? What would you ideally like to see happen? Well, ideally, I'd like we, as a field, we have to get better at telling our story. And I would love to one day meet someone and I tell them about what we do in arts education and they say, oh, I actually already know. <laughs> that would make me really happy. Yeah. Um, and not even so much just what we're doing at Lincoln Center, but you know, the, uh, the, it's astounding to me how much people don't know about why arts education is so important. You know, most people, you know, I, I don't run into people who say that they hate the arts, but they think the arts are either the parents' responsibility or should be after school as opposed to the school day. And I, you know, my, my goal would be that there's, we're better as a field at being able to message uh, on a very basic level, you know, intrinsically why the arts are important, but then we also have it in our toolkit to talk about why the arts are important extrinsically. Um, we have grown, um, you know, threefold here over the last uh, three years. We have tripled our size in both budget and in um, programs. And we are, uh, especially with our uh, President Bernstein, we are uh, deeply committed to the community. So we are doing um, a number of free days of programming from our campus, from all the constituents um, in each borough of New York City. Um, we're doing silent disco, which is this great event where everyone's given headphones and everyone's dancing to a different DJ, but no one knows who they're dancing to. It's great to, to be a part of that. Um, we're in the communities much more than we ever have been with the idea of, you know, wanting people to know that culture can live in your own community. And when you have the time, we'd love you to come to Lincoln Center. You know, it, it doesn't, you don't have to come here to, to experience Lincoln Center. We ultimately would like you to, but, you know, we're more than willing to start in your community. So there, there will be our, our K-12 work uh, will continue. I mean, we're, we're a pretty large program, so I don't anticipate growing you know, tremendously in the New York City area in that way. Although a side of me would love to be in every school in New York City, but I've got to you know, uh, uh, bring that in a little bit. But I, I, I imagine our community work will, will just continue to grow because there's such incredible need. 
wonderful to hear. Well, we're we're happy to help message your story. Russell, yeah, thank, thanks so much it. for joining us today. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. The best way to reach Russell and to support Lincoln Center Education is through lincolncentereducation.org. Click on the website links above this podcast for further details. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.